Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we're bringing the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. You know, for me, Grand Vintage is about freedom. It's about telling the story of the year. So I always start from scratch with no uh, preconceived idea or no blend to reproduce. So it's really the taste of the wines that tell me if I want to go more for one style or the other one. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator. And in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting Wine Spectator's December 15th, 2023 issue. Our cover story is on Bernard Arnault, the man behind many of the brands we associate with the pinnacle of luxury. From brands like Krug and Dom Perignon and Champagne, to fashion icons Louis Vuitton and Dior, even Tiffany Jewelry. We'll be taking a closer look at the man and his wine cellar with Wine Spectator Senior Editor for News Mitch Frank in just a few minutes. But don't look now, it's also the holiday season already, which means it's time for our annual champagne report. One of Bernard Arnault's many world-class winemakers, Benoit Guez of Moet and Chandon, will be joining us a little later, along with our own senior editor, Allison Napius. But let's get this episode rolling. And joining me, as always, is our podcast director, Rob Taylor. Hello, James. Thank you for letting me pull you away from the tasting room this week. You've mm-hmm. been going full throttle in there. Yeah. How many wines did you taste today? Uh, I lost count after the third flight, but we did the Beaujolais Nouveau this morning because that just landed. So we we did a tasting of about uh, eight or nine wines, and that'll be up on our website, uh, immediamente, as we say. Went from that into Bordeaux. I'm in the throes of my 2021 Bordeaux tastings in bottle. That's a tricky vintage, and it is playing out as a tricky tasting. Uh, the wines are <laughs> they're having a little difficulty in the tasting room these days, so we're going to sort through all that. We've got a couple hundred wines to get through. We're going to taste that over the next few weeks. Uh, and then I finished off with some port, of course. Ah, uh, we have the 2021 wow. ports uh, that have just been released, and I've also done a 20 years after recap on the 2003s because that's the best time to start drinking port is about 20 years after. So a lot going on in the tasting room today, and I'm glad it's almost Friday. going to say, you've had a long day. Yeah. So, James, this is our penultimate episode to season one of Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, hosted mm-hmm. by James Molesworth. Mm-hmm. We've got our big season finale episode, counting down Wine Spectator's top 10 wines of 2023, coming up in a few weeks. The big reveal just happened live on CNBC with Bruce Anderson, and the full top 100 list is now up on winespectator.com. That's free content, by the way. You don't need to be a subscriber or a website member to access our top 100 wines of the year, or the podcast, for that matter. But we'll have a whole half hour to get nostalgic with our beloved Bruce soon enough. We're going to be talking a lot about bubbles today, and I will remind our listeners to go back and check out episode three of the podcast when we talked about everything from Cristal to Grower Champagne to how to understand a sparkling wine label. But before we talk about bubbles, we've got a big cover story to talk about. That's right. And for that, we're going to bring back our old pal, Mitch Frank. Welcome back, Mitch. Hey, guys. Uh, Good to be back. James, any leftover port, you're welcome to send down south to my office. Just remember to always pass it to the left. So Bernard Arnault is the subject of our December 15th cover story, and he's probably not a household name to most Americans. But for several months this year, he was the richest person on Earth, richer than Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Since then, Musk has regained the crown, thanks to Tesla stock, but Arnault is definitely the world's wealthiest vintner, worth roughly $188 billion. Now that wealth comes from his role as CEO of LVMH. He's built it into the most successful luxury company in the world, 
with $86.9 billion in revenues last year. More than 196,000 employees in 81 countries work for him, and his 75 brands include fashion icons like Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior, Pucci, Laura Piana, Fendi, Marc Jacobs. There's also watches like Taguer, Jewelers, Bulgari, and Tiffany & Co., as well as perfumes, cosmetics, retail stores, hotels, and a yacht builder for good measure. Wow. So amid <laughs> all those fashion brands, though, where does the wine side fit in? Well, let me ask you, did you buy any champagne last year? Um, maybe a little. Well, if you bought a bottle of champagne in the U.S. last year, there's a 70% chance that LVMH made it. Their brands mm. include Veuve Clicquot, Dom Perignon, Krug, Mercier, Moet and Chandon, Runart, and Armand de Brignac. The non-bubbly part of the portfolio includes Bordeaux greats Chateau Cheval Blanc and Chateau de Cam, Burgundy's Domaine de Lambre, Napa's Joseph Phelps and Colgan Cellars, as well as top names in Spain, New Zealand, Argentina, China, and three Provence Rosé wineries, including Chateau d'Esclan, which is best known for making Whispering Angel. So, to cut to the chase, all told, LVMH sold 3 million cases of wine in America in 2021. Wine and spirits make up about 10% of company revenues. Not as much as fashion or luggage, but it's a lot of wine. It is a lot of wine. Now, Arnaud is known for his history dealing with fashion brands and building them up. He, he had Christian Dior before he started LVMH. But I guess from the wine side of things, what does he know about wine and, and does he drink the stuff? Well, he knows that his favorite is Cheval Blanc. Uh, <laughs> sources tell me Arnaud is not a big drinker. He enjoys a glass with dinner. He's known for eating light, exercising regularly. But he does appreciate wine and has collected Bordeaux for decades. And Cheval Blanc which he bought with his longtime friend Albert Frere in 1998, is definitely his favorite. Okay. What's more important for listeners is what Arnaud thinks about wine as a luxury product. He believes that the luxury business is about creating desire. Yes, we can enjoy wine with dinner for under $10 a bottle, but what makes a wine worth more? To him, it's about quality, heritage, and innovation. The quality of the special terroir and a well-managed winery. Arnaud also likes to stress that many of his brands date back centuries. Uh, Domaine de Lambre was established in 1365. So the idea is that anybody opening a bottle of Veuve Clicquot or walking into Tiffany's feels that they are sharing in a glorious tradition. That's the heritage part. In terms of innovation, well, he's also constantly looking for ways to improve the wine, and he gives his winemakers a great deal of freedom to pursue that. Okay, but I've always said wine is a long game. It takes 10 years to kind of learn your vineyard, another 10 to learn the wine. It's hard to innovate with something that has essentially been done the same way for thousands of years. Stomp on grapes, turn it into wine. So where's the innovation part in that? You're right about that. The big difference is that innovation in wine moves a lot slower. But that can be one of its strengths. Arnaud says that wine's virtue is it is a lot more steady. Fashion brands can become very trendy one day and flame out a season later. Arnaud likes to say that he's pretty sure Dom Perignon will still be opened and still be celebrated a century from now. Well, that sounds like a, a clever hedging of bets there to, to work with wine and its steadiness. Now, luxury hasn't flamed out lately, but companies such as LVMH are facing some headwinds these days, right? After some pretty good years there for a while. Yes, earnings are down for several luxury firms this year, including LVMH. In the two years after the pandemic, consumers who weathered it okay were splurging a bit. Now things have started to slow. 
LVMH was particularly hit in the U.S. in the last three quarters by declining sales of Hennessy Cognac. So it will be interesting to see how Arnaud handles the next few years. And Mr. Arnaud is not getting any younger, Mitch. Along the lines of the, the recent hit TV series, what's the succession plan at LVMH? Yeah, the succession question is on everybody's lips. Arnaud is 74, and LVMH conveniently just raised the mandatory retirement age for their CEOs from 75 to 80. So it looks like he's not quite ready to hand over anything just yet. Arnaud does have Mm -hmm. five children, all of whom work for one of the firm's brands. And he does have his stock set up so that they will maintain control of the company when he is gone. Is he grooming one of them as a potential successor? There are more than a few people watching to see what happens there. Interestingly enough, Alexandra, one of his sons who is working at Tiffany's, uh, is supposed to be the biggest wine lover in the family. Several sources told me that he is a big collector of Burgundies and really knows his stuff. Well, that's a pretty good primer on Mr. Arnaud, his family, and uh, his very impressive uh, luxury goods company. We've got the full story in the December 15th, 2023 issue that you penned, Mitch. So thanks for that. And thanks for coming in here to get us all set up uh, on champagne and, and luxury. Anytime. Good seeing you both. Thanks, Mitch. James, I think I already know the answer to this question, but... Are you ready for bubbles? I'm always ready for bubbles, especially after a Beaujolais Bordeaux port tasting day. Uh, and I'm not the only one. Let's welcome back Wine Spectator's lead taster for champagne, my longtime colleague, senior editor, Allison Napius. Thank you. Great to be back on the podcast. Well, you got to tell us about this year's champagne tasting report. What should wine lovers be looking for this season? I know the vintage report goes up to 2017. There's talk of rosé. There's talk of this and that. What are the things that we need to know about when it comes to champagne right now? Well, the first thing is that we're coming off of two years of super high demand, and probably consumers remember this from the last holiday season and the year before. Going out, trying to find something specific might have been a little bit more challenging. What we've seen this year is that to kind of Um, let's say, balance that demand or make a change in it, uh, a lot of people have increased prices. And at this point, I think consumers have said they've kind of had enough. And and maybe for some of those bigger names that you know, Vuflicot, Mott and Chandon, even some of the medium-sized houses like Krug, Renard, you're going to be able to find those wines, Louis Roder or Cristal, et cetera. Whereas maybe last year that might be harder. What's really tough in the market right now is to find the grower producers. These are producers who own their own vineyards and make entirely from those vineyards. And they're always a smaller production amount to begin with. And and those seem to be even hotter than ever. So, you know, you're going to find great champagne no matter what. But if you have something specific from a grower producer or even from one of the houses, you want to make sure you get that in stock in time. So the big houses have wrinkled out their supply chain issues, and they're getting their wines back into the market as Americans are voraciously drinking up the bubbles. It's the smaller producers that are now becoming even harder to find. Yeah, I mean, I think that the supply chain issues were primarily in 2021 and then early 22. Through last holiday season, it was more just about demand. People still just really wanting that champagne. And now that the prices have increased on some of those, people are maybe looking at some alternatives. And I think that we might see some discounting for the holiday season. Um, not a ton, but maybe they'll come back to a little bit more palatable pricing for some of that. And yeah, those small grower champagnes are, are tough to find in the marketplace. And you've got an interview for us. Tell us who your interview subject was. Well, I had the chef de cave from Moet and Chandon, Benoit Guez. He's been with the house for more than 20 years and always has really interesting things to say, a great perspective. You know, Moet and Chandon, 
works with so many growers in the Champagne region. So between the, their own vineyards that they own and the growers that they have access to, they're looking at more vineyard acreage than anybody else in Champagne. So it's really kind of this global perspective. Yeah. And that broad perspective is really what we want to hear about from one of the big names in Champagne. So Allison, thanks for your interview with Benoit Guez. And let's get to some of those highlights now. Benoit, thank you for joining Wine Spectator on Straight Talk today. Welcome. Hello, Alison. How are you doing? Benoit, when we sat down to talk about 2015 earlier this year, you called the vintage the year of the awakening. What did you mean by that? I mean that in 2015, for the very first time, we've been fully aware of the impact of global warming on our grapes. And I would say uh, prepared enough to work such grapes to turn them into classic champagne. And what type of conditions did you see in 2015? What sort of extremes? It's been quite dramatic. In fact, it's been the driest spring ever in Champagne, minus 61% of rain from uh, March to August. And then it's been the warmest summer since 1961. So a combination of drought in the spring and heat wave in the summer. So if you say that this was the first year that you're fully aware of the impact of climate change, you know, we all hear about the weather conditions and all of these extremes, as you're mentioning. But what does that mean for the wines, for the grape growing and for the resulting wines? On one hand, it means uh, a lot of flavors, a lot of sugar, a lot of richness in a way, a lower acidity than usual, but that can be compensated by your work around the tannins, around the phenolics in order to bring to, let's say, to work some bitters uh, in order to associate with the acidity to generate freshness. That was the challenge. Yes, we've been talking about this kind of pleasing bitterness that we see. So can you explain a little bit about, you said, working with the tannins and the phenolics. So explain for people about the grape skins, how we have those, and how we see this bitterness in the finished wines. I think first, the only way to appreciate the potential for bitterness is really to taste the grapes. We have no analysis telling us uh, what's the right level or what's the right quality of the tannin. So it's really a question of tasting the grapes in order to pick the grapes uh, at the optimum time when uh, the tannins are not green anymore, not harsh anymore, uh, but turn into something like a grapefruit sensation that translates into the juice, into um, yeah, that new sensation of freshness that we have in 2015. Right. So kind of working along with the acidity, even if the acidity is a little bit lower, when you have this kind of grapefruit peel or citrus peel quality, the perception of freshness is still there and is still, you know, a nice balance in the wine. Yeah. So it's uh, it's in the grapes. Uh, and then second, uh, the questions around the process, especially how to uh, let some oxidations happen in order to remove, uh, let's say, the harsh tannins to keep only the noble tannins that give that nice sensation of grapefruit. And of course, in Champagne, the classic blend is Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. So in 2015, which grape or grapes did very well and which of them were more challenging in 2015? I would say the three grape varieties did pretty well. Maybe the Chardonnay uh, has been a little bit more affected by the drought in the spring because drought in the spring means less nitrogen in the grapes and yeast needs nitrogen to ferment properly. And if the nitrogen is too low, uh, it will develop some um, reductive characters and the Chardonnay is more sensitive to that. So let's say Chardonnay has been a little bit more affected, but nevertheless, the overall quality was uh, was more than good enough to produce a great vintage. And I think you told me that perhaps because of this quality with the Chardonnay, you had a, a lower percentage of Chardonnay in the 2015 Grand Vintage. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, even if we don't have any recipe, you know, right. for me, Grand Vintage is about freedom. 
It's about telling the story of the year. So I always start from scratch with no uh, preconceived idea or no blend to reproduce. So it's really the taste of the wines that tell me if I want to go more for one style or the other one. And yes, in this case, I found that the, the black grapes, Pinot Noir and Meunier, were slightly above Chardonnay in quality for first time since a long time. And so was 2015 a vintage that has helped you learn how to deal with these warmer vintages, more drought, this sort of thing, as we see more and more of them each year? Yes, definitely. But uh, in fact, we had other years previously that also been affected by global warming. In fact, if we're looking for analysis on the very long term, the turning point is 1988. It's really at that moment that uh, the acidity started to go down, the maturity to go up. And since then, we can name 1999, but also 2003, but also 2006 as three other years that maybe we didn't perceive it as uh, that much affected by global warming because back in 1999, nobody was speaking about global warming. But nevertheless, we have some memories of these years. We still have the wines as one vintage collections who have started to learn but in 2015, uh, yes, we were fully conscious and hopefully we've been ready because since then, many years have reproduced the same uh, profile. Actually, 2022, last year is exactly the same year as 2015. Same drought, same heat uh, in, in the summer. So I expect 2022 to be even better because in the meantime, we have had seven years to practice and to evolve and to be even more prepared. In fact, we don't declare a vintage champagne every year in Champagne, and even not at Moëté Chandon. And 2015 is only our 76th vintage since 1743. So when we go for a vintage, it means two things. One, it means that we and I, as chef de cave, is confident enough to craft a wine that will have charisma in terms of identity, personality, character, but also will have enough aging potential to spend six to seven years in our cellars and possibly five to 10 years in our consumer cellars. So for me, every given vintage has a given aging potential at the beginning, you know, so it's a due in a way. But probably the aging of 2015 will be more based on the structure of the wine and the support of the Pinot Noir. I think what's going to be even more interesting to follow is the evolution of the rosés. I think uh, when we speak about global warming, the impact on, on the red wines to produce our rosés and our rosé vintage is even more obvious. And I believe that today we have rosés uh, with so much power, so much fruit, and at the same time, so much delicatess, and uh, we are able to craft great rosés even more often than in the past. Yeah, and, and of very high quality as well. You know, something really a pleasure to drink and that separates them from the white champagnes. Yeah, it's really a new, um, not a new offer. It has existed for a long time, but it's a, it's something that we can craft more and more often uh, in larger quantities. And so it's more accessible for consumers. And that's actually something that Moet and Chandan really invested in. You've been making rosé champagne for many, many years, for decades. In fact, when I started uh, at Moet Chandon 26 uh, harvest ago, Rosé in Champagne was only 2-3% uh, of the production uh, for Champagne, but also for Moëté Chandon. And since then, we have invested a lot uh, in the vineyards, uh, in the way we work, the vineyards for the red wines, in technical facilities, uh, in uh, winemaker skills. And uh, progressively, uh, Rosé in Champagne has become about 
10% of the production of that Moëté Chandon, it's at least 20%. So we have really invested in the category and we have taken a very clear leadership in the rosé category with four different uh, qualities at Moëté Chandon, uh, rosé imperial non-vintage brut being uh, the most classic vintage rosé uh, that we have had for a long time. And more recently, uh, Nectar Imperial Rosé, very popular, very successful in the USA, but also uh, Ice Imperial Rosé, that is the, the first rosé especially crafted to be drank with ice. Thank you for your time today, Benoit. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking to Benoit Goua, Chef de Cave from Moat and Chandon. Thank you very much, Alison. So, Alison, that bit about the, the rising amount of rosé, both in terms of production and uh, consumption, is interesting. What are you finding in terms of rosé in the U.S. market these days? Well, I mean, I, I've always kind of looked at it, or my perspective in the last 10 years or so as I've been covering champagne, is you take rosé, which has been incredibly hot, and you take sparkling wine, which has been incredibly hot. Put them together. Like, it was a surefire thing with rosé from champagne. In the last decade, we've seen exports to the U.S. double. So it's definitely not just Moet and Chandon. Everybody's getting on that bandwagon. And, you know, rosé champagne production is even more complicated than producing the white champagnes. And there was maybe a little bit of a learning curve in the early 2000s. But I think in the last decade, producers have really hit their stride with it. And there's a lot of great rosé champagne out there. You know, I see more of it in terms of numbers in my tastings and higher quality in terms of the ratings. So we've got all your ratings all your reviews, all your analysis in the latest issue of Wine Spectator, as well as a full vintage chart, and lots of ways that people can go out and find their best rosé champagnes, their best Blanc de Blanc, and all that good stuff. Allison, toasting to you and the holiday season. I hope you have a good glass of bubbles at home. I'm, I'm ready for it. Cheers to you as well. Happy holidays. Well, Rob, I'm sorry, but this is the part where I get to go find a glass of champagne and you go to the doctor. Gee, thanks. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. See you later. Paging Dr. Vinny. Paging Dr. Vinny. Code Rouge in the podcast studio. Welcome back to Dr. Vinny's office, where our wise and mysterious advice columnist, Dr. Vinny, answers all your questions. Hello, Dr. Vinny. Hey, Rob, and happy holidays. Oh, happy holidays to you as well. And I'm glad you brought that up. First, because it's the holidays and the holidays are the best but especially because the holidays are a super time for sparkling wine. So we're answering some very bubbly questions today. Woohoo! I love talking about bubbles almost as much as I like drinking bubbles. Well, before we get into today's questions, I will remind everyone that they can go back to episode three to hear Dr. Vinny explain sparkling wine sweetness categories like brute and extra dry and zero dosage as well as what we mean when we talk about grower champagnes. So those are not what we'll be talking about today. No, the last thing we want to do, Rob, is become repetitive. <laughs> Although we should repeat sparkling wine every holidays, shouldn't we? Oh my gosh, yes. But there's so much to talk about on the topic, so we're, we're going to be okay. I have a new sparkling wine label question for you today. Mm. Some of the bottles have vintages on them. A lot of them don't. Explain, please. Yeah, good question. So sometimes a wine is non-vintage or NV as the cool kids call it. And that means that the wine is blended from the harvests of several different years. In fact, the vast majority of bubbles out there are in the non-vintage category. Um, so a vintage wine is the one where the label has the year on it. 
And the intent is to give an expression of what champagne was like in that particular vintage. So the vintage champagnes tend to cost a lot more than their non-vintage counterparts. Are vintage bubblies better than non-vintage bubblies? No, absolutely not. Um, like I said, the vast majority of bubbles out there are in the non-vintage category. One nice thing about the non-vintage or envy bubbles is that it can be a way for the champagne house or the sparkling wine house to have a, a house style, which means they're going to be more consistent from year to year. They can blend what they need to blend to make the wine taste the way they want to. It's just a different expression. Vintage champagnes are amazing and they tend to age really well too, but it's just a different expression. Like I said, it's about kind of that snapshot, that time capsule of a place and time and vintage in a bottle of bubbles. Okay, so the other big choice or expression that we have on the sparkling wine shelves is the color. Most mm. of them are your standard golden white wine color, but there are also pink sparkling wines. What's the difference between a white and rosé sparkling wine? Good observation. The color of the sparkling wine is going to depend on the grapes that go into the sparkling wine. So the most traditional grapes used for champagne and sparkling wines are Chardonnay, which is a white wine grape, and then Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, which are red wine grapes. So depending on which grapes are used and the balance between, that will determine the outcome of what color your sparkling wine is. I have one more question for you today, and it's not about the sparkling wines themselves. It's about the glasses that we serve them in. Why do we serve sparkling wine in a flute? Or should we? Yeah, well, actually, some people would say we should absolutely not serve sparkling wine in a flute. So if, if you're wondering what we're talking about, a flute is the tall, narrow shaped glass where there's like a chimney channeling the bubbles in a continuous stream of the glass. And those are quite popular. I have them at home and they're really nice because you can enjoy the bubbles visually. But the problem is, is that if you're like me and you're used to sticking your nose in wine glasses to appreciate the aroma, the flute doesn't really allow for that very well. So a lot of people prefer the tulip shaped glass, which it starts off kind of narrow at the bottom, becomes wider at the top and then kind of curls in a little bit. And it does capture the aromatics a bit better. And if you don't have the tulip, they're kind of rare. A white wine glass is what a lot of wine lovers will choose to appreciate their sparkling wine in. Again, it, it helps you appreciate the aromatics, but there's a little more surface area there, so the bubbles might escape a little bit faster. We don't want any of those bubbles to escape prematurely. <laughs> I wish I didn't have to let you escape, but Aww. it's time for us all to get back to the holidays. Amen. Let's do that. Thank you so much, Dr. Vinny. For more of Dr. Vinny's free advice, check out her weekly Ask Dr. Vinny Q&A on our website or email your questions straight to us at straighttalk at winespectator.com. Thanks, Dr. Vinny. Thanks, Rob. James, that's the end of another action-packed episode of Straight Talk with Wine Spectator. If you like the show, folks, give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And don't forget to tell a friend. You can email us your questions or just drop us a line at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow Wine Spectator on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Threads, and X. James, before I let you get back to the tasting room, give us your patent-pending sneak peek wine pick. 
Well, you know, I used to cover the Rhone, which is my personal favorite wine region, but my colleague Christian Beeler took that over over the last year. And she's been traveling through there lately, and I've been living vicariously through her Instagram. She stopped in at Domaine de Bosque in Gigondas. And this is a domain that I saw on the rise about a decade ago with young Julien Brochet at the helm. Um, this uh, Gigondas Reserve 2021 bottling of his is his base cuvee. He does a lot of single vineyard wines, but this is the base 2200 cases, so you'll find it. He's a different paradigm for Gigondas, which is known for sort of you know, burly, big, powerful, chewy wines, sort of the, the country cousin to Chateau Neuf de Pop. He does a little more destemming. He uses less new oak. This is a more perfumed, elegant Burgundian-styled uh, wine. He learned from Philippe Camby, the legendary uh, consulting enologist who passed away a couple years ago. He's coming into his own. Julien Brochet at Domaine de Bosquet and his Gigondas Reserve 2021. Again, 92 points, 55 bucks, a little over 2,000 cases. This is a domain to get in on the ground floor now. Great stuff. Not just a domain, but an appellation, right? You mentioned Chateau Neuf, and Gigondas is the... Same blend, right? Correct. Uh, so Gigondas is primarily Grenache, and you can have little drops of other things in there, such as Morvet and, su- and such, but uh, it's primarily Grenache. You heard it here first. That's it for episode 17 of Straight Talk. We've got one more to go after this to finish off our first season here in 2023. Thanks again, Rob, for joining me. Thanks to all of you for listening. This is James Molesworth, Senior Editor, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs>